0: Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of DC Power Hour. We're very excited to spread some very deep knowledge on a, an important topic here in the battery industry and look at how ohmic measurements and ohmic values play a crucial role in battery testing. And it's that's really about the extent of what I know about it. Um, so I'm looking forward to learning a lot from our our battery blarney duo of George and Alan. And then we've got a, a very special guest joining us in a little bit, uh Pete Demar from Battery Research and Testing. So these guys are all uh very knowledgeable industry veterans. So let's get into it guys. Alan and George, welcome back to the show. Glad to see you guys.
1: Good afternoon. Good? I'm still living the dream.
0: So so anyway. That's gotta be worth something. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right, let's talk about ohmic values, Alan.
1: Oh, you want me to lead off, okay? Sure. What are ohmic values? Well, uh, it's a value of the resistance of the metallic path through a battery. It can be either taken as a DC resistance, it can be an impedance figure, it can be conductance. Conductance is the uh, impedance is resistant to current flow. and Conductance is the reciprocal of uh, impedance. And uh, whereas uh, resistance is measured in ohms, the conductance is measured in, measured in mo's, which, interestingly enough, is the ohm spelled backwards. And the symbol for it is the upside down omega sign, just normally used for uh, ohms. However, let's uh, go back to the beginnings. And uh, we'll bring Pete in later, later on. And he, he was actually involved from the beginning. He jumped in about a, a year before I did. But anyway, uh, OMIC measurements came about because people wanted a, a way of testing the state of health. Now, I emphasize state of health uh, of a battery, not the capacity of a battery. The only way you can test the capacity of a battery really is do a load test, but people wanted to come up with some way that they could get a good indication, not 100%, but a good indication of the state of health of that battery. So a lot of research was done in the uh, early 90s, which we'll talk about later, but they uh, come up with, a, why don't we measure the the resistance of the metallic path through the battery under the Theory that the as the battery degrades, that the resistance path resistive path is going to increase. So that was fine in theory, and then uh, a lot of experimentation was done. And in the early days, the EPRI, which is the Electric Power Research Institute, got interested, and they did a lot of testing, and we'll talk about that later as well. And their testing involved using multiple instruments, different types of batteries. And they come up with, a, essentially, a scatter graph of the results. And cut a long story short, we took this scatter graph and we looked at it to see if there was any correlation. Well, there was some loose correlation. And that correlation essentially became the basis. Uh, I may be putting the card before the horse here, but it essentially became the basis of the values set by IEEE, and those values went into IEEE-1188, which is the maintenance and testing of valve regulated lead-acid batteries. It also, I believe, went into 450, which is the same document, a different document, but for vented lead-acid batteries. And those correlation figures uh, I'll talk about shortly, but I'm going to let George have his say, but I don't want to get too long-winded here. I've got a nagging cough, so I need to take cough breaks. So George, what's, the, what, what's your input and your recollections here?
2: It was my well, I, I want to go back a little bit further than even you did and uh, explain to people why, why we suddenly started looking for another way of measuring state of health. And that was because when we had uh, the vented acid cells as originally developed by our friend, Mr. Plante, the technician that was doing the maintenance could uh, both take voltage readings They could take specific gravity readings, and they could actually visually inspect the cells because the cases of the battery or the cells were perfectly clear. And uh, for years and years, as long as we had uh, ventilated acid cells in service, we had, especially within the telephone companies, we had probably one of the most reliable telephone systems there was in the world because those battery technicians knew exactly what they were doing they could tell you what was wrong with each individual cell just by keeping their eyes on it the whole time. But then things moved along. And uh, as the telephone system expanded, we found ourselves moving the actual electronics from the, this exchange out into the field into something called a subscriber line interface cabinet. Or those yellow boxes that you see at the entrance to developments. And within that box, uh, it also needed a set of batteries and a charger. But the teleport companies didn't want to be driving around all these little boxes, topping them up with water. So they were looking for a battery that did not need to be topped up with water. And that led the battery companies to start looking at something called recombination. The idea that instead of allowing the hydrogen and oxygen to escape from the cell, you actually pressurize the cell slightly and it recombined back into the plates. The only problem with that was there was two requirements there. One, you had a limited amount of electrolyte. In fact, you didn't have any free electrolyte as such, so you couldn't measure the specific gravity. And B, the process only works if the case is opaque, not clear. So all of a sudden we were installing batteries all over that were both opaque and no way to read specific gravity to the key elements of what the technicians had been using to identify failing cells, and that's that's the whole reason that the uh, the whole drive to get uh, omic testing was, or to come up with a way of determining state of health, was because you could no longer use the traditional methods of uh, battery maintenance. So you know, it's uh, and I think we, you. I'm going to disagree with you a little bit here, Alan, because the one, the one thing, when everybody talks about it's the metallic uh, path through the battery, there is not a complete metallic path through the battery. The current has to pass through, or at least the electric, the, ion, the charged ions have to pass through the electrolyte because you don't have a physical path between the, if you had, you'd short the battery out. What you're meaning is it's the, it's the failure or the deterioration of the metallic
1: Parts of the battery—that's the problem—as we are trying to measure. Yeah, well,
3: they—you're
1: right, George. And uh, for what I meant by the metallic path—in actual fact, uh, if you look at the addition, you know, the resistance through a battery, the electrolyte is so insignificant. Uh, that's why we, uh, you know, we refer to as the metallic path. But, but you're right. The and I know Pete's going to comment later on the on the origins. Probably from the origins within the utility industry, rather than the telecom industry. So anyway, uh, here we had uh, valve-regulated lead-acid batteries, which were touted to be sealed, maintenance-free batteries, and we know they were neither. They're neither sealed because they have a pressure relief valve, and they're certainly not maintenance-free. And actually, in fact, when we first started writing 1188, we're getting a little bit worried because. We were coming up with more maintenance requirements than there wasn't 450. So uh, that was a little bit. But well, let's uh, jump a little bit forward here. I think we'll all agree that uh, ohmic values are a pretty good indication, certainly not 100%. I used the 90% figure accurate to give you some indication of what's happening within the battery. So the IEEE had to put some values on this and they come up with. After many, many sessions, they come up with uh, two, fig- two significant figures. One was that if the increase of the resistance or impedance was more than 30%, then it was a kind of an indication that there was something going wrong there, a kind of indication of that uh, the battery was heading south. And then they come up with another figure, uh, and that was a 50% increase. Uh, in the resistance or impedance, and of course, the inverse for conductance or admittance. But that 50% said, hey, the chances are that that battery's shot. So, you know, you've had your warning at 30, flag there at 30%, keep an eye on this battery, 50%, eh, indications are the battery's shot. So you've got two options. Uh, one is the, you do a load test. To confirm that, or well, the other option is, uh, maybe cheaper just to uh, swap out that particular cell if the battery hasn't aged significantly, or uh, maybe see what you can do to uh, to maybe rejuvenate that cell a little bit, because I know Pete may talk about that briefly, so anyway, we had these two figures, so they based on that, the manufacturers, in my mind initially. Said, meh, you know, we still want you to do a load test. Well, here's somebody with a thousand dollar battery, and ohmic, ohmic values show that uh, on that battery, say it's a 120 volt utility battery, that uh, one six volt, 12 uh, volt blocker is bad. You know, are they going to do a two thousand dollar load test on it, or even more, two thousand, three thousand dollars? You're probably getting it cheap. But uh, just to prove that a sell in a thousand, two thousand dollar battery is bad. And the answer was no. So a lot of people just started taking the ohmic values as, uh, as uh, you know, as gospel and change out that battery. The manufacturers, in my mind, eventually jumped on board and they all come out with their statements on ohmic values. Uh, I know one company I was working with for quite a while, they come out with a a document and said we will accept domic values depending on, or uh, if you meet this criteria. And one of them was, which related to another conversation, was that the baseline data be taken, but the baseline be data should be taken about six months after the battery's put in service, so the battery could be fully formed. And then they said, you know, providing it's taken with the same tester, providing it's using the same test points, and you know, always preferably on the uh, post itself, not on the hardware, and uh, some other provisios. And uh, then, uh, you know, we're on a warranty. But that opens something else, which I know George has worked on a lot, and that is how do you interpret the data? So let's go over to you, George, and tell us about your vast experience of looking at boring, boring uh, bar graphs and various charts that will – that you produced to, to uh, determine the state of uh, not the the state of health of the battery. So,
2: well, you mean all that work I do to prove this idea that thirty percent and fifty percent doesn't mean
1: a damn thing? Well, you said it. So, well, it's uh, it, it must uh, be true. It must be true, George because It was an IEEE. So I thought it must be true. Okay. Look, the the, the first problem with that is.
2: That uh, you were involved in one of the committees that decided that, so we'll
1: question that one to start with. Well, so is Pete DeMar. so he can we'll put him on the put him on the, the block when he comes on. Okay, um, you know I like Pete, but I don't always agree with him. Uh, who does? Who does? You know who does.
2: <laughs> so anyway, the, no. The, the the point is that um, if you are talking about an individual cell as such, and whether that cell is a VLA cell or a uh, VLA cell, um, yeah, the 30% and the 50% sort of work. The problem is that when you start looking at the standard VLA uh, unit that we are talking about, especially within the uh, data center, the ut- industry, where they are 12-volt, and in some cases, 16-volt units, uh, which a 12, we've got six cells in there so if you're measuring you can you can't access the individual cells so you start measuring across six cells in series um you can actually have as i have proved in a number of my uh, lessons with using live real live data is that you can actually have a cell that is well over 50% in increase from the you know over time to the point at which that be yet when you take all six cells together, you still haven't reached 30%. So th- this idea that the, the the value becomes God. And that, that's that's my biggest argument with it is that people want to always put fixed values against something that is infinitely variable. And that, you know, that's that's where I come from on it. It's it's not a case of the value, it's it's the the, the change, the rate of change, this you know, uh, the level of change over the other cells in the, in the in the the battery. That's what you
1: ought to be looking at. So you're, you're talking about trending data, which, which I'm, I'm a big fan of. But the uh, problem is that uh, a lot of times only measurements are taken, uh, they're put on a file somewhere, if they're even printed out, and then uh, there's nobody there to trend the data. So it kind of becomes useless. But uh, what kind of things are we looking for, George, uh, when we do data trending? If you're going to look at, you've
2: got to look at everything. It, I, I keep going back to this is probably one of my biggest concerns when we talk about ohmic measurement is this almost pathological belief now that that is the only value that matters. But you have to go back to the the original battery technicians. You have to think about what they did. They were looking at everything. They were looking at the temperature, they were looking at the voltage, specific gravity and 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 the state of the plates we can't do now, so they've got ohmic value. But ohmic value is not. it's, It's how is that battery responding under float conditions or under a discharge condition? One of the values you have when you start talking about using battery monitors where you can collect data from every aspect of the battery's operation because that's what you're looking for. You want to see how those values diverge between each other. It's a, uh, you know, the, you, you can, we, we have this, We've, I was brought up on it, you were as well. The whole idea that the omic value always precedes any change in any other value on those uh, cells. And yet, after, you know, being the boring old I am, sitting looking at piles and piles of data, especially to try and do papers for on that won't get rejected. I, I, if you remember, I found one where uh, a battery failed and the voltage, in fact, led before the ohmic value changed. But it, the problem you had there was because you were, again, using fixed values for that voltage, you could know, you know, it didn't, it didn't fall that far, so nobody realized it was changing because there was this belief that you had to look at the
1: ohmic value and nothing else. I, recoll- I recollect a batcon several years ago, and boy, did we have a share of OMC testing papers in batcon. Uh, but it's we asked a, a panel of uh, experts, as I call a panel of so-called experts. But we asked them what what was the most significant thing to look at when you're monitoring a battery, and everybody came up with the same two. We come up with three or four things, but the same two things. One was temperature, and the other was current. So if you had the temperature and current, and they, uh, there was a change for some reason or other, say the current went up, but the temperature remained the same, you knew there was something, something happening. So you're right, and uh, you've got to trend more things than ohmic values. But let me, let me change it around a little bit here. So we have ohmic values. Okay, work driven by probably VRLA batteries work very well, but my question is: Do they really work on high capacity cells? When I say high capacity, I mean you know, say a thousand ampere hours and above. You know, do they really work there because the resistive path resistance is is so low? So, uh, and what about uh, NiCad batteries? What about uh, pure lead uh, plantate plate-type batteries. Uh, what about uh, some of the, you know, even looking into the f- future, uh, can we apply it to some of the chemistries that are coming coming out at the moment? And I'll probably let Pete talk a lot about that. But, uh, George, what do, what do you think about uh, their value for other than the VRLA low capacity, when I say low capacity, uh, below, below about 500 ampere hour? cells.
2: Well, it's the, the, you're, you're correct in the sense that what you're saying is that the, the, the largest amount of change in ohmic value we see is within the lead calcium cells because of the level of corrosion that occurs within the lead calcium uh, grid uh, as the battery ages. So that's the, the predominant one. The, but the every other one actually does show a change in ohmic value as the battery ages for a pile of different reasons, including the pure leads. I have actually looked at the data for pure leads, and no, it isn't. It doesn't rise as fast or as much, but it does change. But the key to it is—is is how is it being measured? You know, you mentioned earlier that we're talking about resistance, um, impedance, and conductance. But in the end, what it comes down to is—and one of the reasons—the earliest of the battery monitoring systems that uh, both Pete and I were are familiar with uh, are used at quite a high current in order to do the perturbation current, to do the testing with, or to do the measurement with, whereas a lot of the smaller handheld units and the smaller units don't use such a high current. So that, that's one of the reasons why you don't see as much change, because you've got two things. You've got the A, you're generating, a, you do generate a voltage drop, with the current, no matter what level of current you pass through, there is a voltage drop that occurs that you can measure. The only problem is you need some very accurate instrument type uh, devices, solid state devices, in order to measure those voltages. And you also have the problem of noise at the same time, because the batteries are not as quiet as people think they are. So, you know, yes, today and with modern technology now, you can measure a lot more accurately so you can also uh, get rid of power a lot more easily so you, you we got to the point at which you can uh, you know for a, uh, for a vented lead acid cell we can uh, with a, with a small single cell uh, sensor module we can actually draw 20 amps through that cell as part of the test which is about the same as the uh, one of the competitors used to to draw on on the, on the full size system, so uh, yeah, as as long as you can draw sufficient current through the the cell, you are going to be able to get a valid reading. You just it might not change as much. So this is again comes to the point. Is where I keep saying, why do we have to have these values? Why do we must? Why must we have limits? It's not limits. It's how much does it change? That's that's the other reason why. Eventually, I do believe we will see artificial intelligence get involved because artificial intelligence doesn't need limits. It it recognizes
1: those changes and variations. That artificial intelligence, machine learning—that was going to be my next, uh, you know, topic, George. But uh, you've jumped in there already. But uh, they, there seems to be a wider acceptance of OMIC values as a de facto de facto proof that. Uh, there was uh, there's something wrong with the battery. When I was with the interstate batteries, interstate power care, uh, I was responsible for, the, for all the warranty assessments. And that's where I got the, the name, as you know, Dr. No, because I always said to a warranty claim, No, because I always found something else that was wrong. Uh, usually overcharging, sometimes undercharging. Well, oh, sorry, probably 50-50 overcharging and undercharging. But anyway, the uh it's become a widespread uh acceptance now of ohmic values as an indicator that will be accepted by the manufacturer or whatever, or whatever body as the fact that the battery is bad. Uh, is this a good thing or uh in my op- my opinion is it's probably it's all to do with financial engineering again. And I know when we talked to Peter, uh, he'd probably have something to say about that uh, because he has been, been involved somewhat. But uh, we're at the state, say, for instance, uh, PRC005. They basically, uh, basically say that uh, that's, if you use a battery monitor that involves taking ohmic measurements, you don't really need to do anything else. You don't need to do any basic maintenance, uh, which to me is uh, kind of crazy. But uh, IEEE wasn't involved in the early days of, of uh, coming out with that document, although uh, we did get involved later and we screamed, uh, screamed at them a little bit. But, uh, you know, that was a document, in my opinion, that was a compromise and it was produced uh, basically to save the utilities money and look good in the face of the regulators that they were doing something about battery failures. So, surely we're going to bring Pete in, but uh, I don't know how we're doing for time, David, but uh, I'll let, uh, hand it over to George for a while here and maybe spout on about something else and then we'll bring Pete in. Out on, we're getting really, you know, you must be getting better. You're
2: starting to get more difficult to deal with. Well, you know, that's, uh, I'm a curmudgeon, that's it. Yeah, yeah I, I take Somebody said to me, what, what do you call yourself in this podcast? And I said, It's called the the, the Blarney. But the Blarney said, We're talking about Blarney because, you know, we're both Gaelic in some form or other. And uh, I said, But really, it should be the two grumpy old men. Yeah. You know, and
1: uh, kind of reminds so, me of the Muppets, you know. So, yeah. Characters, but uh, one of the characters uh, I, uh, who I like because uh, kind of reflects on my personality as well. But, you know, when you get to, our age, George, and uh, our state of employment—you think, what the hell? You know, who's going to fire me? So you—you you tend to say what you like. The only golden rule in this industry is, is you don't really badmouth anybody else uh, or any other company because you, you could probably end up working with them or for them. So you got to be—you got to be careful. You got to tread a tread a line. But uh, just a uh, blow our own whistle. Back in uh, a lot of people might not know, but back in nineteen ninety. Uh, George and I became the whistleblowers of uh, battery. What was the George battery? We said that batteries are supposed to keep you up. They're going to let you down. Yeah, that was, that
2: was the title of our paper. And we, we did it
1: in 1990 at a national conference. And uh, we basically said valve-regulated batteries, they don't work. Stop pointing fingers at each other. And we gave them all the reasons why they didn't work. But anyway, that's going back. so George. We, we are becoming curmudgeons. We are curmudgeons. Curmudgeons are us. So anyway, let's see what you, 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 you've okay. got to sp- sprout on about here for your closing remarks, and then we we'll go to Pete.
2: Okay, well, it, really, it, it comes back to what I've been talking about all along, and and you're right when you talk about uh, zero zero 005. But it's, it's, it, it isn't just... They're not just saying omic values because they want other things done. They want measurements of um, continuity. They want measurements of intercell resistances. Uh, but the, the the one part that does totally confuse me always is the fact that the uh, if you are taking the are collecting the data manually within the rules you have to, as the person the, the person, person analyzing the data, you have to make a judgment based on the data you see and what you're looking at as to whether or not the battery will operate as required. Basically, that's what they're telling you to do. However, if you go to battery monitoring, where you collect a lot more data, uh, they, they don't tell you to do any analysis. You simply, basically, you can believe the ohmic values. And that's the way that most people uh, translate it. The only problem is that um, on all of the equipment, both the the companies that do uh, manual testing units and uh, permanently installed monitors, such as our friends at Albert and at uh, BTEC at one point when we had the handheld, um, it's the same piece of software that does the analysis for both the handheld and the installed monitor. So why is it that you have to do analysis for one of them, but not for the other? Although it's the same piece of software, the same graphs, the same data you're getting to look at. It's things like that that puzzle me, you know? So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of that out there. The, the, other, the other problem I have all the time is that um, some of the classes where I'm running these days is where we talk about doing the, uh, collecting the data, battery maintenance, collecting ohmic value, and then I start talking about doing the analysis and almost every time it's, well, we don't know anything about the analysis. We just take the data and we send it off. And so some subject matter expert looks at it and makes a decision. And I, I always ask the question, does the subject matter expert come and do the visual inspection as well then? Because the two go side by side and the answer is no. So, you know, it's, it's this idea that we can take any one thing and make it the value that's going to determine the status of the battery. And that's just not true. We need a heck of a lot more information. We need a better way to analyze that data. I'm not sure we got there yet. know, The only reason I mentioned the artificial intelligence part was because we need to find something that can do it. You know, even, even back, you know, Ten years ago, when I was doing analysis for my previous employer, you know there was a limit to how much you can do it, if you really get into something that's a that's a puzzle, it can take you two or three hours to go through the data and start to make sense of it so
1: uh, yeah i, I, won't, but I won't i'll be so. I'll
2: be interested to see what Pete has to say and i, I you know he and I are a perfect example of uh, your comment earlier about you don't madmouth m d because uh, you never know what's going to happen later on. You know, at one point in our career, uh Peter and I were absolute rivals for on one contract. It was which one of us was going to get the contract to do this job, you know, with a major uh, government contractor. Uh He wasn't my friend at all in those days. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, but, you, you know, we recovered from that and we're, we're, we're friends now. I'll be, I'm going to be really interested to hear what he's got to say. It'll be it be nice to hear somebody actually pick you and I up for something because we're not getting picked up very often.
1: Well, you know, I don't mind if, if we are. You know, I I can always uh, I can always talk my way out of it. You know, become a politician and spin everything. So, and I, I can also deny I ever said something. But uh, no. But anyway, uh, let's bring Peter into the conversation. Yep. I, I know he's uh, eagerly waiting there. By way of a short introduction. Uh, Pete and I have probably known each other for, oh, probably 35, 40 years. Uh, I grew to respect Pete a lot in the early days of my, with the IEEE because he'd been involved a lot more than I had. And he had also been a blo- involved with the uh, utility industry where I come from a telecom background and somewhat of a UPS background as well. But anyway, uh, Pete uh, has become a major figure in the industry. And uh, actually, Pete and I have one thing in common, and uh, our audience—I uh, let them try and guess what that is. And one thing, Pete probably doesn't know what I'm talking about as well, but we do yeah, have one—we do have one thing in common. Yes, we do. But anyway, uh, Pete, do you want a brief introduction, and then I'll throw throw yeah. some so- softball questions at you? And All then, right, uh,
3: yeah. little background. Yes. I think I started in the industry in uh, 75, 77, somewhere in that range, and back then, as everybody knows, if you're working with stationary batteries, that's what my specialty is, back then, you either worked for a manufacturer or you worked for a manufacturer's rep. Nobody else serviced or sold stationary batteries. It was very tightly controlled, and I got my start working for J&M Schaefer, they're C and they were then a C and D rep in central upstate New York. And uh you uh as I as I mentioned, you could not service, well, you could if you were the, the factory that had it or the power plant a battery, but otherwise nobody was servicing stationary batteries except for manufacturers and their reps. Now all the independent shops that are out there that can sell you any brand of battery. They'd have one primary brand usually, but anybody can sell it now. And there's a lot to be said that, oh, we're independent. We're not aligned with anybody. Well, that's where my background started. And in 82, I was one of the founders of battery research and testing. And we were an independent stationary battery service company. We decided we would not sell anybody's battery and we would test everybody's battery. And our goal was to work for three utilities in upstate New York. That was all we were gonna do. We weren't gonna do any nuclear work. A lot of things we said we weren't gonna do that we did. And again, we only service stationary batteries and chargers, even though as we all know, motive power is a big part of that industrial battery market. Because of some of the things we were doing that was different than anybody else, we just kept going. Oh, by the way, we had the very first Albert BCT30 that was ever on the market that wasn't in a nuclear plant. And we, we put, I think we should have gave that to a museum. Um, we, Because of our testing, we people started calling us from all over the country. They'd read about what we did or whatever. And uh, we got lucky, a couple of engineers that we did work for, did papers in, uh, I don't know, if, I think it's called T and D now, but you know, transmission substation magazine and power gem. And we kept going. And then when the valve regulated market came along and it was such a failure, you know, early on, had such problems, uh, we developed what's called, what we we, uh, trademarked the name IOVR and IOVR plus process. All that does, that stands for internal omic value recovery. And that simply started out originally you could add water, and you reestablish the conductance path in, in, the, in the battery, and then we and I realized that the, like, the mechanical part inside is a conductance path, the electrolyte's a conductance path, the AGM between the plates, and the gel is a conductance path. We primarily were recovering AGM batteries. Because of that, the Air Force came to us. And shorten the story up, we've been to every, any place around the globe that the US Air Force has any presence at. Every single base, we've made multiple trips there recovering their batteries because they have probably 99% BRLA batteries. So, so Pete, uh, in the IEEE battery working group for over 30 years, uh, then just stopped, you know, I donated enough time, maybe that's seven, eight years ago. And uh, presently, from probably I mean, 2019 till now, for battery research, I just do research, crazy experiments. Why is this? Why doesn't this work? I do. I'm lucky in that I get to go around the world for a particular insurance company uh, doing failure investigations. And one of my favorite ones, I was a couple of years ago down in Chile, a battery this is a vented battery now, failed when it, the unit tripped and wiped the bearings on the unit. Luckily it was a small unit and their total loss was a little under 20 million. But they wanted to know why, because that battery had passed a capacity test and looked good. And by all voltages and gravities, it looked good. And it was a lead selenium battery. That doesn't mean anything. It's just I'm saying that because it's got tubular plates. I had a suspect that it was nodular corrosion, and I got lucky. When I got down to Chile and went and looked at it, I was three-quarters of the way through the battery and couldn't find any indications. And somebody looked over my shoulder and said, got to help you out here, Pete, and I spotted what I needed. You know, the the first signs of nodular corrosion. Then I showed my escort, the electrical supervisor, what I was looking at, now the 60-cell battery, we found five more cells that had this failure And I mean, out there looking in from a flashlight on the outside. Then you put a borescope inside the cell and look around. But this one will always stick in my mind because we always think about, geez, if you have an arc inside the headspace of a cell, you're going to have an explosion. The positive said a singular positive pose, It melted off right underneath the cover completely opened up the lead splattered around the inside and uh i want to thank jim mcdowell for uh because i sent it to him i was puzzled because he and i go how could this happen he said very simple the hydrogen oxygen mixture wasn't in the right percentages to explode and it makes such sense you can have a a very high hydrogen hydrogen content it won't explode and a load it won't and uh, hey, uh that's it.
1: Would, would you have found this uh through omic testing, this uh
3: nodular growth uh very, very good question in because this the company down there shipped a bunch of cells to us after this, and we did a bunch you know a number of dissections on the ones that we'd selected. And the the post actually it doesn't corrode away, but it like cracks and changes structure and builds up high high resistance. And I would think that there would be a possibility you could find some of those, some of them before they get severe, not. And I wanna to jump to one thing that George said, or mentioned, we am talking about high rate. And as we all know, a slight change in high high rate resistance, has more of an impact on the cell than that same resistance under, let's say, a five-hour discharge. If you got a battery, you're discharging at its five-minute rate or something like that. And just grab that number compared to its five-hour rate. Gonna have totally different results. I also want to agree with you guys about artificial intelligence. As as these machines can get smarter and smarter and solve these things quicker. And I relate to George because I have a consultant contract with 30-some power plants around the world. And uh, I recently spent just like eight hours reviewing data from this plant in Vietnam and trying to understand. And all of a sudden, the light bulb came on. I mean, I had an idea when they sent me the first thing. And it was it has to do with plate polarizations, which you guys understand, and with... Uh, one of our major American companies where the voltages will go super high and super low, but you hit it with a load and it levels right out, performs well. And I've introduced the the power plant people of that manufacturer to help them out. And it's going to need a uh, plate polarization. Well, we got off them internal, mic I didn't mean to, but I do believe that with in improvements or inclusion or whatever the right word is, with artificial intelligence into the machines and the programs in understanding what they're looking at, we're going to make improvements. How the, do the, I, I say improvements? Up. The information or analysis come out of them might be more beneficial. Pete, uh, you know, we
1: talked about, and uh, George and I spiel, we talked about uh, the fact that, uh, Omic uh, testing is a kind of a good indication of battery uh, state of health. What, what, what's your thoughts on that?
3: Well, I'm not sure the state of health is, I know that's used. I mean, I think we all can agree that nobody as yet has provided data that will prove any correlation to capacity, or capability with a caveat, one thing that we use intronomics for. I mean, obviously, we trend them and track them through the years. And as George said, you have to start with somewhere. Absolute numbers aren't necessarily, I don't necessarily agree with them, but I understand why the battery work group had to put some values in there. You know, they had to have something. And the best thing that came out was, okay, you start with your baseline. And yes, your baseline should be a few months after the batteries had a chance to be fully formed. But one argument I had with that was, well, what if you got a battery that had to be sitting in a warehouse for a couple of years, and this happens all, not all that infrequently, and you put the battery in, and after six months, and let's just for a number, let's say that the internal resistance, we use internal resistance should be, let's say 150 microns, just just a number. Well, if the, if the cell was good and the freshly charge that, but now you install them and after six months, all of your numbers are within range, let's say between 220 and 270. Oh, well, they're all on a nice tight, you know, fairly tight pattern there. So now if you use that as your baseline, you've already got numbers that are, what's that, over 50% above what they should be. So I, I, I don't like using absolute numbers. I do and all the manufacturers know approximately what their numbers are, right? They have that data. So I I, I I'm we have gathered data for what 20-some years now? And we have our numbers, and we know when a number for a particular battery from a particular manufacturer is not a good number. I mean, I guess I I drifted off there. I just I I think you need to work from a baseline, but you need to know that your baseline is approximately where it should be. My only problem, Pete, is that
1: uh, manufacturers baseline, they're always in my opinion, taken on cells that are straight off the formation tables. Yes. Uh, and uh, not a true indication. No. Uh, they they uh, cover other, themselves. Other than that, uh, you know, the uh, they're taken with various instruments. A lot of times they're taken with laboratory instruments, like such as Hewlett Packard. And uh, they don't relate to the uh, figures, the impedance or resistance figures that you would use with uh, Albert, Midtronics, b or whatever. Uh, and uh, you know, the other thing is that they, the figures are not transposable. In other words, if you have a certain impedance value, You can't really transpose that to uh, DC resistance value. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, gray areas there. But uh, say that that they they work pretty well uh, for valve-regulated lead-acid batteries, say. Yes. Uh, And uh, in my opinion, it's it's, it's a good tool. But uh, let's look at something else, Peter. People are starting to accept those values more and more. We know that uh, we've gone through the PRC-005 thing. You had mentioned to me in a previous conversation uh, something that kind of caught my attention. Uh, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about it. And that the fact you mentioned insurance companies, you're working with insurance companies. Yes. there's 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 been a seismic, Drift there, I think. In my opinion, so would you like to go into that?
3: Yes, (laughs) that. uh, Well, it surprised me when I learned it, and I knew when I told you, but but by your reaction, it surprised you. Factory Mutual is is the insurance carrier, and I learned just this is you know in the last six months, they might have been doing longer that for substation or switchgear type applications. Not power plant. They now have an acceptable testing. If that's the right word, they got a, a document that for vented lead acid batteries. This was this is why it got my attention. Um, that you could use internal ohmic values as a acceptable device. You no longer in that application had to do capacity testing. They've always been capacity testing. And what you have to do, one of the requirements is just what you said about three or six months after it's installed. That is when you establish the baseline reading for each unit. And then that is what you reference throughout the life of the, of the battery. And as you said earlier, PRC006 did this to get away from having to Spend the money that capacity testing costs to prove that their batteries was, were capable or functioning capable I guess is the right word, and in a switch gear application, if you think about it, not some of the newer substations where they've got longer loads now because of more controls, but their highest load is when they you know they first switch equipment you know and so omic values possibly, can they can create enough data that, okay, this, this, this model battery, if it's above this number, will do that function. That's not a capacity test. But, and, I, and I would guess, but I'm not sure of this, that if FM, who's a real big dog in that industry, is doing this, I would guess that some of the others are all, also for bad application, but I was, it was emphasized to me, this was only for substation switchgear, not for power plant application. Pete, uh, somewhat r- related to that,
1: uh, you, uh, we, we looked at, uh, mentioned th- going forward, the use of artificial intelligence and, and uh, machine learning. What, what about the batteries that are, the, uh, you know, more advanced chemistry? Batteries are coming off the line at the moment, and obviously lithium ions are the, the leader in that. But uh, we also have zinc batteries and sodium batteries and everything else. Is there any really? place for is there any place for
3: omic testing there? I don't know. I think it's, it's the old saying: it depends. I mean, I know there's some also some research coming on some new aluminum stuff, and I'm I'm in the very outer perimeter. Of understanding what's happening there, and but I do know that they uh, they're trying to have built-in recombiners, and that's as I know very little bit about it. But because of the research that we're doing with battery gas recombiners, that I learn about some of these things I never knew about, never had. You know, I mean, I realize there's been aluminum air batteries out there, but I do not. Uh, know what this new new technology is, but it is being funded by big money so and I would have to think that anywhere where you have some sort of a conduction path uh, which that you have to have obviously <laughs> to make a battery up is that uh ohmic testing can be beneficial but to what
1: to what end you know it's, I, it's, it's kind of uh... To me, it's a little bit like the Holy Grail because uh, as these batteries begin to dominate, you, you must have, you know, I, I know little about them and I don't want to know much about them. It took me 40 years to learn about lead-acid batteries. Yeah, I'm still but, learning. But, uh, uh, you know, they, they need some way of being able to establish a state of health, a la similar to what we, we do with VRLA batteries. But uh, kind of, uh, we're going to wind this up a little bit. But I do have one interesting question that I that, that I just thought of uh, as we go along. As you know, these things are not really pre-planned. Pre-planned, Pete. Uh, we just go off on tangents and, see and we yeah. talk about go where the talk takes us. But uh, uh, I've always had a problem with uh, ohmic testing and UPS batteries, uh, basically because. Uh, mainly with impedance and conductance testing because the fact of, of noise, how noise plays a part in it. And, uh, there's that ever, ever lasting struggle to get the right frequency to inject the signal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're talking usually at the moment, pretty low frequencies. And then we have the problem with the, uh, the current, you might, you might current you, you need to draw. But, uh, I see more and more that, uh, UPSs or putting monitors on, and sometimes I'm I'm not too sure about the accuracy of the results, especially uh, certain types of UPSs. You know where you have a high noise uh, coming back from the inverter, and not only and from the charger, but uh, they. Recently, I read an article about a one manufacturer. Uh, actually, it was a consortium was building an ohmic tester into the battery it's battery cell itself. Uh, do you see this going anywhere? Well, first of all, that was a two-pronged question. One, one, one was, uh, what about battery monitors and UPS, and the, or ohmic testers and UPS, and and what about uh, the uh, inbuilt uh, ohmic, ohmic testers?
3: Let's let's start with uh, ohmic testers and UPSs, and you hit it on the head an awful lot of variables and frequencies and things in there that can affect it. And if you go way back with internal testing, uh, there was major issues with that, with some equipment. Like everything else, everything just keeps getting better and better, more intelligent goes into it. And now uh, the piece of equipment I put in on there, I pretty much believe have covered most of those issues with a with the with the monitors now able to monitor accurately as much as they do, I think it's a plus. And where I really think it's a plus is anytime there's a power outage. If you've got a, a fast acting monitor, you basically you're doing like a sort of a mini discharge test, and you will find your weakest units or cells. And what George said about when you got multi cells in a jar. It's very confusing. Whereas I think it's a lot easier to understand the data, what the cell is, when you have individual cells that you can monitor, because you can pinpoint. Okay, that one right there is my weakest guy, or it's got X. Now let's jump to building monitors into batteries. I, I really don't know enough about it. I don't know how it can be done economically, and I'm not sure what that economically means. As you know, in lithium-ion, everything is being monitored in there. Uh, lead acid is not yet, but I don't know why monitors can't put a, be put on lead acid that could monitor. I think in lithium, come back up, sorry, I jumped away. With lithium-ion, I mean, your, your temperature is so critical there. When things go bad, they go bad fast. Whereas with lead acid, I believe that there's more predictability. So by monitoring, you can be more predictive of maintenance than uh, if you don't have a monitor on it. But I sort of dodged your question, but my answer is I don't have a good comment on building monitors into the batteries.
1: Well, uh, you, you're not really dodging it, Peter. I was just looking for something I could throw at you that uh, you, know, you, you might stumble over. So
3: That was it. That was a good one.
1: That was one of many. I couldn't let you off uh, easily. Uh, we probably. I haven't seen any uh, wind-up signals from David yet, but but he's he's giving it to me now, right? Good. But anyway, uh, Pete, pleasure having you on. Mm-hmm. Uh, as always, I appreciate your opinion, and I appreciate uh, those f- phone calls now and again. That says Alan, what, what do you think of this? Yeah. So anyway, uh, glad to call mm-hmm. you a friend, and uh, any of our listeners can guess what Pete and I have in common. I'm sure we can rustle up a. Eagle Eye t-shirt or something like that for them. All right. <laughs> First available person that uh, sends uh, an email to uh, whatever the link is, David. Send
0: uh, it to info at eepowersolutions.com. Okay. And we'll and then, uh, uh, give you a price.: uh,
1: we'd, we'd love to have you on again. Uh, I can't think of a subject uh, that I wouldn't be able to bring you on and say, this guy knows a little bit about this. So thanks again, Peter. All right.
3: Thank you, everybody. Have a great
1: day. So you'll probably get a phone call down the line sometimes. Okay. Say, Peter, uh, we're doing a podcast on uh, XYZ. Would you like to join us? And hopefully you'll right. say yes. See you later. We don't pay thanks, a lot. Pay. We don't pay anything, but, uh, you know, uh, we, can, we can buy you a beer now and again. We can do that. Okay. Well, thanks again, Peter. You're welcome. And we'll put it back over to, uh, to Dave. and. He can do what he does to uh, end the podcast.
0: We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.